basically the country runs from and forms itself from, the Book of Romans is much like the Christian's constitution of our faith. It really is a book that begins to define all of the great doctrines of the Bible that we need to know as Christians. And so we have been uh, coming through that. And uh, we were in chapter 4. And uh, we've been looking at two men's lives that really, uh, really the book of Romans is built around. And you find these two men in chapter 4 is exactly where we're at here. And of course we talked about how that they represent the great concept of getting God's righteousness. And that's really what the book of Romans is all about. We're coming out of the Old Testament. We're now into the New Testament church. And where the Old Testament was set up on a, on a, on a work system as far as keeping the law and the sacrifices, we now have entered into a, what we call the church age where salvation has come through grace and faith with nothing else involved. And what he tries to establish, or really the first great doctrine that he establishes in Romans, is the doctrine of God's imputed righteousness, or the doctrine of God's justification of you and I, that God imputed his righteousness to us. And we talked last week about the word imputed, how it means to put on our account. It means to put, uh, uh, as Abraham, God, he believed God, and it was counted to him for righteousness. The day you and I got saved, what God basically did is this. He took his righteousness and he gave it to us. Then he took our sin and he put it on his son. And that is why you and I have the ability to, uh, when we trust Christ as our own personal Savior, to be saved and and then spend an eternity with with the Lord Jesus Christ. David and Abraham represent uh, those two great principles. It was Abraham, if you remember, that got got God's righteousness uh, simply by faith without anything. And Genesis chapter 15, uh, God takes Abraham out on a starry night and shows him the stars. And the Bible says that he tells Abraham, someday your seed is going to be like the stars of heaven. And the Bible says that Abraham believed God. And at that point, the Bible says that God counted it to Abraham for righteousness. Then David, and that's who we're looking at today, started last week. Last week, remember, we kind of put the end in front of the beginning and I I took you and showed you how David got messed up. I think it's very instructional for you to understand these principles as we come through and look at David's life. David's the other example. Where Abraham got God's righteousness by faith plus nothing, David represents the aspect of you and I getting God's righteousness when we didn't deserve it. David commits two sins that in the Old Testament or under the Old Testament law that there's there's no sacrifice for. The only payment can be death and that is murder and adultery. And yet the Bible says that God gave to David the sure mercies of David and didn't kill him. And there's an example of what you and I got. Abraham represents how I got it by faith plus nothing. David represents the fact that when I got it, I didn't deserve it. And boy, you take those two men, and uh, it's a great, great study to come through the Bible. told you last week we're going to look at David through three aspects. When you study the life of David, then a little bit later on, we're going to come back and do Abraham. I want you to see both these guys. They're, they're absolutely important to understand the book of Romans. I told you how that there's three aspects of David's life, or at least how we're going to study it. We're going to look at David as a shepherd. We're going to look at that today. Then we're going to look at David as king, the king of Israel. And then we're going to look at David as the man of God. I told you last week that there was three books in your Bible that really lay it out this way. First and second Samuel deal with him as a shepherd and king. And then the book of 1 Chronicles deals with him as God's man. And I want to today, using that little model, I want to look today at his life and, uh, and, uh, and study him as God's, God's shepherd. 
And I, I think that once you begin to see this, that you'll realize the great truth. And I know I tell you this all the time, but I, 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 remember, I want you to remember it. And that is simply this, that in the Old Testament, you have a lot of stories. And those, every book of the Bible in the Old Testament is basically a story about something. And when you get into the New Testament, for the most part, past Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you'll find there's not any stories told. You'll find that it's, it's principles about how to live your life and how to accomplish things in your life. And what you've got to do with the Bible is realize that the stories in the Old Testament, the stories of men's lives, the situations they get into, the women in the Bible, the children in the Bible, all the great prophets of the Bible, the kings of the Bible, all of those men's lives and what they go through are handpicked by God and illustrate the New Testament principles. When it comes to really knowing your Bible and understanding your Bible, and I talk many times, you hear me use the term, a working knowledge of the Bible. A working knowledge of the Bible is a Bible that works for you. Not just something that's on your coffee table, not just something that you carry around and profess to believe but never read, but a working knowledge of the Bible is a Bible that works for you. That in any given situation in life, any trial and tribulation, anything you're up against in life, you can go to the Bible and see the principle illustrated by the story and then apply it to your own life. It's absolutely key. And I, I spend a lot of time, if you hang out here a lot, I spend a lot of time talking about, talking about those aspects of the Word of God. And when it comes to David, and we begin to look at David as God's shepherd, there's some great parallels. David's early life as a young shepherd yields some of the greatest inspirational material for our daily relationship with God. It's, it's quite incredible. And when you begin to study David's life from the aspect of him being a shepherd, God's shepherd, we begin to see the foundational years of his life. We begin to see how that God began in that very early part of his life to, to manifest himself and build into David the great principles that even though David went astray and David got into some problems, and we'll talk about that in another time down the road, God got him back because of what God had invested in his heart. You know, I, I, I've made it my, my life to really study the Word of God, and I don't claim to be a Bible scholar in any sense of the term, but I am a Bible student. And I believe that the difference between a Bible scholar and a Bible student is real simple. Bible scholar thinks he's arrived and he has nothing else to learn, and now he just wants to teach you. But a Bible student is someone who understands that uh, you never learn the Bible, and life is a learning process even for the one myself who teaches you. I don't stand up here as somebody who's arrived and understands everything about the Bible. I stand up here as someone that learns every day just like you do. In fact, many times when you come over and we sit down together and go through the Bible, as many of you do, I learn as much from you as you probably do from me. So it's a, it's a two-way street. But if I've learned anything in my life about looking at David's life from the aspect of him being a shepherd and try to apply it in my own life to be a better pastor. And I, I, I work at this all the time. I, there's never a day in my life that it doesn't go by that I don't ask myself in some way, how can I be better? How can I do better for the church and the people that God has given to me? What can I do better this week than I didn't do last week? And my life is one of constantly uh, looking at it and, and trying to formulate a better way to help you get where God wants you to be. And I, I've come to the conclusion uh, long before today, but studying David's life, which I took a study of his life many, many years ago, and I realized one great truth about me as your pastor and you as a member of this church, and that is this. I understand that the most probably important time in your life, 
is those early years right when you first get saved. Or maybe you're already saved, but you've been kind of circling the field for a lot of years and never really found a church to get into. People come in, in two, two categories. Some of them come in and they get saved, and we begin the process of teaching them the Bible. Some people come in, they've been saved for a long time, but have just never really plugged in anywhere in the Bible or a church and never really got grounded, and so we take those people and ground you. Uh, either way you come in, I've learned this from a study of David's life. The most important time of your life is these early years to lay the foundation in your life. It's a time when you've not learned. You know what I love about this church? The thing I love about this church is that most of you have never learned to be Baptist. You've never learned how to play the political game. You've never learned how to, how to manipulate things. Uh, you just come here for the most part. You love God. You love the Word of God. And you just want to learn what God has you to do. You want to raise your families as best you can. Many of you want to make your marriages better. And you want to try to be and do and fulfill what God has for you to do. There isn't any politics in this church. This church is just based on the Bible. One of the things I try to do is I try to keep this church as close to a New Testament church as I can get it living in the 21st century. It's not always easy to do, but it ought to be the goal of every pastor. To keep it as simple as possible and keep it as profitable as it can be for you. And make sure that every time I stand in this pulpit, I have something that challenges you or gives you what you need uh, for what you're going through in your life. But I've learned this. Your foundational years, your early years, are absolutely crucial. Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, and we had our softball devotions last night, and David, uh, Zizer, used this text, and, uh, you know, and uh, it's a great text. And he's talked about in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 11 through 16, where it talks about no other foundation can a man lay which is laid than Jesus Christ. You see, the day you got saved, you laid a foundation in your life. That foundation is Jesus Christ. And then it goes on to say that, that you need to build three things on that foundation. Gold, silver, and precious stones. Now we've talked about this before, and this is not, certainly not new to you, but it needs to be repeated over and over again so we all grasp it because as we all know, the price of learning is repetition. He says three things on that foundation. Gold, silver, precious stones. I've told you many times that those three things represent the foundational years of your life. They're what I try to build into your life and give you what you need. Gold represents the deity of Christ. In other words, getting to know who God is, getting to know about God, getting to understand the concepts. You would be absolutely surprised that most of God's people who are saved and on their way to heaven really do not have a biblical concept of who God is. You've got Christians out there today that are saved and going to heaven. And they're looking over their shoulder every five minutes because they've maybe not lived their life the way they think that God would have them to live it. And so they're waiting for God to come down with a big old flash water and whack them. And they're just living in constant fear. That's not the God of the Bible. God loves you if you're His child, and God wants the best for you. And I'm certainly not going to take away that sometimes God doesn't come down and takes us all to the woodshed. Uh, but you don't have to live your life in fear at the fact that God is some revengeful God who is just waiting to give you some incurable disease, you know. That's not the God of the Bible. So you need to learn about God, gold, and then silver. Silver in the Bible is redemption. Jesus Christ was sold for 30 pieces of silver. The silver on the foundation will represent you learning about what He did for you. You see, it's a process. 
But it's a process that needs to be built in the formulation years of your life once you get saved or once you decide to become what God wants you to be. When you make that decision that you want to be serious with God, it's my job as a pastor to have you what you need to get that done in your life. And of course, the silver represents the redemption. Understanding the price that God paid for your salvation and my salvation. And then the third one, of course, is precious stones. Precious stones in the Bible are likened to people. And it shows us the process when you get to know God and you build your relationship with God in these foundational years. If I'm doing my job right, you'll not only learn about God, but you'll also learn what God did for you. And you cannot learn about God and then learn what God did for you without wanting to tell somebody else about it. That's a natural process. And that's that foundational years in your life. Proverbs chapter 27. You don't have to turn to it. Uh, Proverbs chapter 27 verse 23 ought to be the watch verse for every pastor who ever lived. And it simply says this. It says, Be thou diligent to know the state of thy flocks and look well uh, to thy herds. And that's a great verse for a pastor. It's a shepherd's verse. And we're going to talk today about David being a shepherd. We're going to talk about how that God wants you to be a shepherd. But there's a process, and the, an incredible process that takes place or needs to take place in our early years. I love that verse that says, Be thou diligent to know the state of thy flocks. Notice it didn't say the number. It didn't, it didn't, it didn't say the financial status. It simply said the state of thy flocks. In the Bible, one of the great doctrines is the doctrine of standing in state. And of course, we know that when you get saved, your standing in Christ Jesus is up in heaven. You're seated in heavenly places. But the state is, the, is what you live every day in your life, you and I. We struggle through. Uh, the, the state that you're in this morning is simply where you're at in your own personal relationship with God as you walk through this life. And my job is, uh, is to be diligent to look at the state of my flocks, where you're at spiritually, to help you uh, get where God wants you to be. My job, very basically, if you want to put it in a nutshell, is to give you the best shot as a child of God. Uh, it, let me say this. If, my job is twofold. If you're an unsaved man or an unsaved woman here this morning, I have one goal today, and that goal is to give you the best shot of finding Jesus Christ as your own personal Savior as I can. If you're a saved person here this morning, my job is, 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 in the second phase of it, is to give you the best shot of standing at the judgment seat of Christ, be not being ashamed, and having everything that God has for you. That's what it takes for a pastor to look after the state uh, of his flocks. Back in the, back in the 80s, uh, I began to uh, see how, uh, uh, and ask myself, how can I better help my people? My ministry was growing, and I was beginning to see people get saved, and I, I asked myself the question, what can I do? What can I do that will really help my people understand and grasp the fundamentals of the Bible? I came up with a concept, certainly not unique to me, it's in the Bible, but I put it into a working form. I come up with the concept of discipleship. Mike and I were, were talking this week, and remember you brought up the fact, it was back in the 80s, down in my little office there, I had about, I had little groups of 10 people, and you were one of the first ones that came through those discipleship lessons. And of course, we still use those discipleship lessons today. And when a person gets saved or a person wants to start to learn the Bible, that becomes the fundamental place that we start. 
giving you the basic fundamental concepts of how the Bible works for you and how you can use it in your own life. And it's, a, it's, it's where it has to start. You know, the ministry, and if you ever get in the ministry, and I know some of you will, some of you will pastor, but the ministry has been for me a learning process. Don't ever as a pastor get to the place in your life where you think your people can't teach you anything. That's a very dangerous place to be in. Don't ever get so high up as being a pastor or a leader or whatever the case may be where you think that you're above learning something from your people. I want to tell you something. Outside of the Holy Spirit of God and the Word of God, the greatest teachers in my life have been you, the people that God has put in my life. Many of you have taught me things that you don't even know. There's many things that I've watched you do that you didn't even see me watch you do it, that ministered to me. And, you know, you you learn. You learn the ministry is more than just uh, getting up here and saying, okay, I'm in charge and this is what you need to do. The ministry is a learning process for both of us. And I've learned that what I need to do in my life is exactly what you need to do. I'm not any better than you. I may be the pastor of this church, but I'm certainly not any better than you. I struggle with the same things that you struggle with. I have to deal with the same issues in life that you do. And and together, as we come through the Word of God, that's where we use the Bible to fix it. But I've learned that my life, uh, and your life is too, or you should know this, should be in a constant state of redefining yourself. You never should be satisfied with where you're at. You always want to be looking. I know in my life, I always are looking how I can be a better pastor, how I can be better in everything that I try to do when it comes to the ministry and in my own personal life too. My job, my job is to help perfect you for the ministry, as the book of Ephesians says. And I've learned over the years that the best way to do that, and really probably the only real way to do that, and this is what I, I love about our church, is the, is the one-on-one times that we have in the Word of God together. If I've learned anything over the years, I've learned that if you really want to build a relationship and work your way to ministry where you really become everything that God wants you to be, in this church, anyhow, it's going to require that you and I understand where each other is at. You have to learn my heart, I have to learn your heart. And you have to realize that uh, when, uh, when we spend time together in the Word of God, we accomplish a couple of things. As I already said, you get to see where my heart is at. If you're ever going to be part of this ministry, and I understand it's God's ministry, but for whatever reason, God chose me to head it up and lead it, so therefore, His ministry has become my ministry. And if you're ever going to be, be fruitful and productive in this ministry, you're going to have to know where I'm at. You're going to have to see who I really am. You're going to have to learn the things that I love. You're going to have to see the way that I am. Uh, You're not going to get that from Sunday morning or just coming on Thursday. Oh, you'll get some of it. But if you really want to know who I am, you come over and spend time with me one-on-one. And I'd like you to do that. But at the same time, I don't want you just to do it so you can see my heart. I want you to do it so I can see your heart. You see, the ministry is yoking up together. The ministry is two people uh, becoming one mindset to accomplish the ministry. When you get a whole church of two or three hundred people doing that, then you got a ministry that's hitting on all eight cylinders. Yet at the same time, when we, we spend time together, you know what? We get to straighten out some things that maybe you're not sure of. Shore up some things in your life. I do know this, and, and most of you can attest to this. And I say this because the foundational years of your life, once you either get saved or you decide you want to learn the Bible, is absolutely crucial in your life. I'd say that first two or three years after that is absolutely 
essential for you to get foundationalized in your life where you can really begin to use the Bible and know how the Bible works for you. But I know this. I watch some of you come over, and you know, you'll have your little notebooks of questions, and we do it various different ways. And for you visitors here, don't know what I'm talking about, I have a standard policy that I'll spend an hour a week. Well, it's about an hour every other week now. But an hour a week or so with everybody in this church that wants to come over and study the Bible together. You can pick what you want to study. You can pick what you want to go through. Maybe you want to go through a book in the Bible. Maybe you want to go through a subject in the Bible. Maybe you're having a personal issue and you just want to know what the Bible says. Maybe you want your marriage to be better. Maybe you want your, to be a better father or better, a better uh, a mother. It doesn't matter to me. All that matters is that we sit down together and open up the Word of God because now we have a perspective for ministry. You're going to find out who I am. I'm going to find out who you are. You're going to find out how serious I am. And very frankly, I'm going to find out how serious you are. And that's what it takes for ministry. The Bible says prove all things. And and I don't ever ask you to prove anything to me that I'm not willing to prove to you. It's a two-way street. But we, that's, that's what it takes. That's what it takes to really perfect the ministry. The real key to David's life and him being the shepherd that God called him to be was those foundational years in his life. When he was out there all by himself, all by himself out there tending the sheep, that's where he built his relationship with God. That's where he, he got alone with God in those foundational years while he was watching his father's flock and then having a relationship with God and learning the process of being a shepherd. And We're going to talk about that in a little bit greater detail here in just a little bit. But the real key to your success in your Christian life will be the same foundational years. Now, God is not going to put you out on a, on a field someplace watching sheep. Uh, but he will put you in a church where you have a shepherd that can help you understand how to, how to pastor sheep, how to work with people, and how to, how to learn the concepts of life. A couple of weeks ago, we talked about a great verse in Amos chapter 3, verse 3. And I said it was not only a great statement, but it's a great question in the Bible. It says, how can two walk together except they be agreed? And the ministry is people, like a church, coming to an agreement. Coming to an agreement that we're going to commit ourselves to do the work of God and then through the process learn how to accomplish that uh, in our lives. Proverbs chapter 25, verse 19, another great verse. You don't have to turn to it, but you want to look at it later. It says, uh, it goes right along. It says, confidence in an unfaithful man in the time of trouble is like a broken tooth and a foot out of joint. The point being, in both cases, when you eat and when you try to walk, you can't do it because of the fact that you have a broken tooth and you had to have a foot out of joint. And unfortunately, uh, you know, many times that's what hurts the ministry. Too many broken tooths and too many feet out of joint. Uh, and it, it, that's the thing that hurts the ministry. David's early years, we see God developing all of these areas in his life that in time are going to make him not just the shepherd of the sheep, but the great shepherd of the nation of Israel and God's people. Now, a verse I do want you to turn to is over here in 1 Peter chapter 5. And let's look at this real quick here. And uh, if you don't have a Bible this morning, that's fine. You can just follow along and listen to me or look on with the person next to you. Don't worry about it. But uh, here's what it says. 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1 through 4. You know, in the Bible, the Bible talks about five different crowns that you and I can get at the judgment seat of Christ. There's a lot of information on the judgment seat of Christ. The judgment seat of Christ is the place where God judges you and I, not because of our sin. That was taken care of at Calvary. But he, we go to the judgment seat of Christ because God is going to judge us as to our service. 
what we did for him, as I say many, many times, God's not going to hold me accountable for what I know or what I don't know. God's going to hold me accountable for what I could have found out but chose not to, see? And that's the judgment seat of Christ. But there's five crowns in the Bible. We've talked about them before on Thursday night and, and, uh, and I think even probably on Sunday morning. But these five crowns uh, are what you and I can win at the judgment seat of Christ. The rewards that we will get. And each one of them stands for a specific thing. One of them is found in 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1 through 4. And it's called the uh, crown of glory. Let me read it for you, starting in 5.1. The elders which are among you. Now let me just say, an elder in the Bible is, is someone that's been around for a while that really has an understanding of the Bible. An elder is someone who has grown up in a church and, uh, and he, he or she, there's women elders in the Bible too, it's not an office like a, like a deacon or a bishop, it's, a, it's a more of a designation, but you have, you have men and women that grow up in the church, they've been around for a while, they know their Bibles, they have a working knowledge of the Bible, and uh, they're designated as elders in the Bible. Elder in a sense, not that they're old and decrepit, though they can be elderly in age, but uh, but. Elder as far as having a good handle on the Word of God, knowing the Bible. The elders which are among you I exhort, who am also an elder. This is Paul speaking. And if you know, Paul was not a pastor, but he was an elder. A witness of the suffering of Christ and also a partaker of the glory that shall be revealed. Now look at verse 2. Feed the flock of God which is among you, taking the oversight thereof, not by constraint, but willingly. Not, not for filthy lucre, but of a ready mind. Now here he says, now that we ought to feed the flock. You know, an elder in the Bible is, and that ought to be the goal that everybody in this church wants to get to. An elder, if you see it, the Bible says, is an overseer. He helps the pastor oversee the flock. Because the bigger the church gets, the more people it takes to, to kind of watch over people. And I'll, we'll talk about why that's important in a moment. But that's, that's the job. That's what we ought to be doing. And my job is to, is to reproduce myself uh, into you. Help you become uh, everything that God wants you to be so you can help me. As our church grows and we keep moving on and we keep doing things and, and God blesses us, we're, it's going to require more people who have an understanding of the Word of God. Notice it says here that you're to take the oversight, not by constraint. That means that, that I, I don't ever want to have to come up to you and put a hammer lock on you to get you to do what's right. When you grow properly, you do it willingly. When you understand through the foundational years of what the overall goal for you in your life is as a Christian, you do it because it's the right thing to do, not because somebody put a double hammer lock on you and squashed you on the floor and you said yes. Then it says for filthy lucre, that's, that's money, but of a ready mind. A ready mind. See, that's my job. My job is to get your mind ready. My job is to help you get a ready mind or get your mind ready to understand the thing. Neither being lords over God's heritage. How many times you've been in churches and you can always tell who the head guy is. Or, sorry, you can always tell who the guy thinks he's in charge. He always runs around and he looks like a peacock with big feathers sticking out. He's always running around ordering everybody what to do. See? And in reality, he has, no, he has no power or no, no, no authority to do anything. But he likes the people, some pastors like to lord it over their people. I've seen pastors that just, uh, you know, they just, uh, they keep their people as down as much as they can. Every sermon they preach is just to beat them up so they can, they can control them. 
and they'll do all kinds of things, say all kinds of things. I've even seen pastors that would pit one person against, if he had two strong people, they would pit one against the other. He would tell this guy, hey, you got to watch Fred over here, and then he would go tell Fred to go watch Sam, see? And he'd say, I don't trust Fred, I don't trust Sam. Sam, I don't trust Fred. So you two don't know that we're talking, you guys are watching each other. That's how he controls it. Your name's not Sam, and your name's not Fred, but excuse me for using it as a stand in there. Is that a baby boy you're going to have there? Oh, is that a girl? Okay. I was going to say, what do you call him, Fred? <laughs> but I actually have seen that happen. And, uh, you know, in David's early years, we see where God was developing in him. And then he says this in verse 3, Neither being as lords over God's heritage, now here it comes, being in sample. And when the chief shepherd shall appear, you shall receive a crown of glory. There it is which shall not fade away. A crown of glory. The, the crown that you and I will get. Hey, if you're discipling somebody right now or have discipled somebody in the past, you've already got that crown. You've got that crown. That crown is given because we minister the Word of God to people. That's one of the easiest crowns you can get. The easiest crown you can get. And that crown simply comes because you have gotten yourself into a ready mind that willingly, without constraint, you said, hey, you know what? I want to help oversee this ministry. I'm going to put myself over here, and I'm going to go and give God what he needs, and I'm going to help Bob oversee what's going on, and wherever I can get in, wherever I can help take the load off him, wherever I can get in and do this and do that, that's what I want to do. But I want you to see verse 3 says, neither being as lords over God's heritage, but being in samples. Notice it didn't say example. It said in sample. And there's a big difference there. Because examples in the the word example is something that you do. The word in sample is not what you do, but it's what you are. Now what he's saying there that you can't do this without being what God wants you to be first. I'm not interested in your abilities or what you can do. I'm really interested in what you are when it comes to your relationship with God. I'm not worried about the example you are to God's people, but I am worried about the example you are to some people. I want you to, I want you to not only do what you need to do, but I want you to be what you need to be. And that only comes through the foundational years. David learned to be the man after God's own heart. David learned to be the, the shepherd that God wanted him to be. By not just being the example, but he became the insample. He not, only, he not only did the right things, but he became the right things in those early years. And that's why I'm telling you, your early years that we work together in the Bible, and those years can be two, three, four, maybe even five years, they are the key to you becoming the overseer and helping in the ministry as God has called you to do. We're going to talk about some things here. Now, now let's, uh, let's, look at the, uh, let's look at David as the shepherd. Take your Bibles again and turn to 1 Samuel chapter 16. Now, I've told you before that in the Bible, uh, you have what you call the law of first mention. Usually, the first time somebody shows up in the Bible, it's usually the, or something shows up in the Bible, it's usually the definitive passage. And when you come to David's life, this is the first full-blown expose, so to speak, of David. And this is a great place for us to start to look at David as the shepherd. Because, as I said, that ought to be your goal. Your goal as a child of God, if you're saved this morning, ought to be that you're going to enter into that process that you become everything 
that God wants you to be, that you can be that under-shepherd, that overseer that God wants you so desperately to put into your life. Now, what we've got here is this. I need to explain a little bit here. We've had King Saul, and he's been a failure. King Saul was obviously wasn't God's choice. He was man's choice. And he's been a terrible, miserable king. And now God is going to get his king, and his king is going to be David. And what you have here in 1 Samuel uh, chapter 16, verses basically 1 through 13, we're not going to read it all, we'll pick it up in about verse 6. What you have here is David uh, being called by God. And what I want you to see here is the process. It's an incredible study. I want you to see how God looks for a man, what God looks for, how God views the whole process, and I want you to see the underlying foundational stuff that God looked for in David's life. Because I'll tell you something, ladies and gentlemen, it's the same thing that he's looking for in your life and my life. Well, let's read it here and, uh, uh, as we come down. Verse 6. And it came to pass, when they were come, that he, he looked on Eliab and said, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said unto Samuel, Look not on his countenance or on the height of his stature, because I have refused him. For the Lord seeth not as man seeth, for the Lord looketh on the man looketh on the outward appearance, but the Lord looketh on the heart. Then Jesse called Abimadab, and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, Neither hath the Lord chosen this. Then Jesse made Shemaiah to pass by, and he said, Neither hath the Lord chosen this. Again, Jesse made seven of his sons pass uh, to pass before Samuel, and Samuel said unto Jesse, The Lord hath not chosen these. Now, here's what's happened. They're going to call a king. He goes down to the house of Jesse, who has seven sons. Really, he has more than seven. And surely Samuel thinks, I can find a man for God who's going to be the king in this guy's house because he's a great guy. One by one, Jesse's boys pass before uh, Samuel, and the Lord's standing on Samuel's shoulder saying, uh-uh, that's not the right one. Nope, not him either. In time, all the boys pass. Now watch this. Watch this. Verse 11. And Samuel said unto Jesse, Are here all thy children? And he said, There remaineth yet the youngest. And behold, he keepeth the sheep. And Samuel said unto Jesse, Send and fetch him, for we will not sit down till he come hither. And he sent and brought him in, and he was ruddy, and with all a beautiful countenance, and good little look to. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brethren, and the Spirit of the Lord came upon David from that day forward. So Samuel rose up and went on to Ramoth. Now, Father, we ask you to bless our time today. We ask you to take this rest of this message and this text, Lord, and to show us what we have today. And we'll thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. For his sake we ask it. Amen. Now, after reading this passage and our introduction that I gave you on those foundational years in your life and David's life, we're ready to see some things about David now that I think are great parallels to you and me. First thing I want you to notice this, and you can't miss this. This had to stick out already. In fact, I was hoping that while I was reading this, you were maybe listing some things there and not on a piece of paper in your own mind. You know the first thing I see here? And this is a kind of a troubling thing, but it's the first thing I see. Not everybody has what God's looking for. Did you notice that? He had seven boys pass before him, and none of them had what God was looking for. Now, that tells me something. Now, that tells me, and yet, there's nothing wrong with these kids. I mean, the Bible didn't say, but it, it didn't go into any detail. But as far as you know from the account there, they were good boys. 
I don't think that Samuel would even went there if they weren't good boys. What was it that seven boys didn't have it and one boy did? Why is it in some places with God's people, God will use some people, but He won't use somebody else? Why is it that God, some people have what God's looked for and some people don't? You know what? You find the same thing with Abraham. That's another incredible story. Bible says when God found Abraham, He looked out through the whole world to find one guy who would want to be His friend and only found it in one. Wow. Wow. I don't even want to put that into New Testament Christianity because I know God found me to be His friend. That leaves you completely out of the ring. I'm just kidding you. But not everybody has what God's looking for. You know what? That's one of the great reality truths of the Bible. And yet at the same time, I'm going to tell you, it wasn't because God didn't want to use them. It wasn't because God said, I'm not going to use you, but I'll use you. I mean, He said that, but there's always something behind the scenes because God wants to use everybody. We need to decide this morning, and it'll help us. It'll help me be a better Christian, help you be a better Christian. We need to decide and look at this thing and find out these things. What did God see in the one that He didn't see in the other seven? I think it's instructive. Ever wonder why God uses some people? I mean, it's a simple principle. I'll tell you the bottom line, and we'll get, I'll look at this, but here's the bottom. They didn't have a foundation that David had. Remember a while back we did, uh, we did parenting classes, and I told you how to, you know, train up your children and all of that, and I, I told you that your children go through four phases. And as a parent, you need to be on top of your children in these four phases. And uh, the first phase was the, dis- was the discipline stage or the fundamental foundational stage where you discipline them. The second stage was they moved in in time as they grew into the relationship stage. Then as they got a little older, they moved into the fellowship stage. And then as they got a lot older and moved down through life, they went into the responsibility stage. And I told you that your child is going to go through those four stages. Your job as a parent is to recognize those four stages, recognize what stage you're in right now, and and bring them from stage one to stage two to stage three to stage four. Now, the last stage is responsibility. That should be the older your child gets, the less you you should have to tell them what to do. They should should pick up after themselves by the time they're three or four (laughs) in a perfect world. Casey, how old are you, Casey? 14? By 14, <laughs> I already know you do because I keep tabs on you. Your, your sister says you're really a good girl. Pick up after yourself, cook supper, dinner, wash the car, cut the grass, trim the dogs. You do good. No? Another, must be another Casey. Anyway, when you get to the point of your life, as the older your kids get, the less responsibility, the more responsibility you give them. They ought, to, they ought to handle it better. You know why? When kids, are, when kids are, and I know you're a good girl. I'm not just playing with you. But you know why when your kids get 15, 16, 17, 18, uh, or 17, anyhow, 18, they can do what they want to do. But in those years, you know why you got to beat yourself over the head? Because you missed out on the first two stages of it. The first two stages are discipline and relationship. Building those two. You know what? It's the same thing with Christians. I look at you, I mean, hey, you you got kids and they're your children, aren't they? Well, you're God's child. The same process that God gave you for your children is the same process He uses for you. The fundamental discipline years of your life as a young Christian focus on two things. One, discipline, and two, relationships. 
That's my job. This your job as a parent. It's my job as your pastor. My job is to make sure you get everything you need to, be, to have the discipline in your life and then teach you about the relationship in your life. Now, listen to what I'm saying and don't take this wrong. You know why you need to be an example as a shepherd, as an overseer? You know why you need to be not just an example, but an example? This is very important. The reason why you need to be not just an example, but to be an example, not what you do, but what you are, is because, uh, let me put it in a parent's concept first. A parent needs to be an example to their child and an example. Because when a child is growing up, you put them into that discipline stage when they're very young, and then you move them into the relationship stage and then right on down the line. Now, here's the problem. A child at three months, four months, five years old, six years old, seven years old, maybe even eight years old, they don't understand all the concepts of God. Oh, yes, I know they pray, and it's cute when they pray. But you've heard some of their prayers. They're praying for their goldfish. They're praying for their hamster. They're praying. You're teaching them the concept. That's good. But the content, not there yet. Now, God looks at that and loves it. Don't misunderstand it. I mean, when I, when I see, when I see my, my grandkids down there praying, and they're praying for, you know, the, everything in the world and, and, uh, and all that stuff, I, I, I look at that, and I, I think, wow, that's really great. They're learning the concept. In time, they'll learn the content. Your kids growing up can't understand who God is. Oh, they know the concept of God. They go down there in elementary and they teach them about God and they put picture puzzles together and they make kind of stuff like that and they have an idea about God. But they, they're not in a relationship stage with God. You know, only God they can fellowship with is you. You're their God. Don't take that wrong. God is living inside you. You're all of God your child is going to see. In fact, the reason why so many kids mess up down the line is because the God they saw in those fundamental foundational years was the wrong one. That's why. They need to see in your life not only an example, but an example. Now, it's my job to help you do that. It's my job to help you work the kinks out. Nobody's perfect. Everybody makes mistakes. I've certainly made them in my life, and you will too. It's okay. I don't care if I say many men, I don't care where you've been, what you've done, what you're into. All I care is right now, where do you want to go and what do you want to do? And you have children who, who in that young fundamental foundational stage, they are, they, are, they are susceptible. They understand the concept, but they don't grasp the content. You are the content of God for them. Now, let's put it back in our ministry here. Young Christians are the same way. You get some young Christian that comes in, or some person comes in and just gets saved. They don't know nothing about God. They know nothing about the Bible. And I give you to work with them. You're going to disciple them. You're going to work with them. Or maybe they're having some problems. And you're, you know, they don't understand God. They don't see God. They don't, they don't grasp the concept of God or the content of God. All they see is you. And they're going to see God or not see God in your example. Now, as a parent, you raise that kid up through the discipline stage and the relationship stage, what you do as they grow. What's the next stage? What's the third stage? Who? Everybody. What's the third stage? Fellowship. Fellowship. 
Once you establish them in discipline, establish them in relationship, then you bring them through and you establish them in fellowship, not only with yourself, but with God now. You introduce them to God because they've come through the process. You were the conduit. You were the pipe. You were the person that God used. You, what they saw in you is what their concept of God was. And you work that and bring them right into fellowship with God, okay? As a discipler, as a counselor, as an overseer, as an elder, they only see what they see of God is what they see in you. You know what my job is? You think my job here is, is for the next five years to have you stay where you're at spiritually? My job is to bring you through a process. Same process. Discipline you. Disciple you. That's where the word discipleship comes from. It's a discipline. Bring you through. Foundationally. Put in your life the foundational thing. Give you what you need to build on that foundation. Gold, silver, precious stones. I become in your life, or the person you're working with becomes in your life. They become your concept of what God is. But my job is to get you to get your eyes off the person that you're working with, and in time as you work through that and you get develop into the fellowship stage, you build your own relationship with God. You know why some of you call me up on the phone right now and ask me every question about in life, and some not in this life? And it's okay. That's my job. That's what I get paid for. I get paid by the peace. Keep calling. Because you've not yet learned how to do that. Now, do I want you, maybe you're 20 years old right now. Do I want you when you're 65 still calling me? No, I want you to learn through the process to stand on your own two feet wide. So you can take a part of this ministry and help somebody else. But I never want you to stay where you're at. It's a constant case of defining, redefining yourself, a constant state of looking who you are, where you are, what stage you're in, and letting people help you get to the next level. But it's the foundational stages that are crucially important. Incredible. Old Mel Sabaka, my, my, my man that taught me the Bible. You ever wonder why God uses, doesn't use some people sometimes? It's not because he doesn't want to. I used to hear it every time he preached. I used to hear it all the time. And he had a voice that sounded like two broken gears grinding together. You could never miss it. He'd yell at the top of his voice, what's wrong with God's people? Why they're not in ministry? Why God won't use you? I heard it over and over and over and over. Some nights I sit up in bed and screaming out in a hot sweat. You know what it was? God never sends green troops into combat. You know why God won't put you in the ministry? You're green troops. You're recruits. You never get out of basic. Tell me, you never get, never, some of God's people never got in basic. And you stay green. And God is not going to sacrifice you on the altar of ministry because he knows you're going to get killed in a heartbeat. He never sends green troops into combat. You know, it's not what you know about the Bible that God looks at, but it's what you do with what you got that God looks at. The Bible says in Hebrews chapter 5, verse 14, he says, he's talking about uh, people that God uh, hasn't used or won't use or can't use. And then he talks about those in verse 14, he says, those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. That's the process. And my job is to, this is nothing more than an exercise class. It's a, it's a, it's a co-ed aerobics, spiritually speaking. 
And it's, it's, a, it's a thing where we all exercise our emotions, our souls, our spirits, and we all work out and stretch it. Some of you, uh, some of you are on the bench pumping out 500 pounds. Some of you are just starting with a little weights on it. Some of you got them little barbells where you're picking them up with your fingers, and that's all you do. But that's okay. It's all right. We don't care. Nobody's going to walk over here and make fun of you because you're just picking up baby barbells. The fact that you're doing something, that's the key. You'll get the weight on as you exercise. You'll pick up the weight. You'll learn how to do it. And you'll learn, most importantly, through exercising your senses to discern both good and evil. But then I'll tell you another thing. This is true of so many churches. God won't give you any more than you're willing to take care of. God is not going to give you people that you are not going to be diligent with and work with them and be there for them. He's not going to. He's not going to. You know, I think one of the greatest tragedies in the Bible was Solomon's son, Rehoboam. And here's a guy after Solomon died who had a chance to pick up the kingdom and go on with it. He had a chance to get back and keep this thing going. But in 2 Chronicles chapter 12, verse 14, it, it talks about Rehoboam and it says this. It says, Rehoboam did evil because he prepared not his heart to seek the Lord. Now that's the basic underlying problem. One, you won't get a ready mind. You won't get your mind ready. Two, you won't prepare your heart to seek the Lord. It takes preparation. And that's what David did. That's what he did. These boys are no good to God, not because they're, not because they're bad guys. You know why God can't use them? They have no experience of being shepherds. I don't know what they were doing, but it, they weren't out with the sheep. God is looking for a young man's heart that wants to shepherd his people and they learn how to do that by taking care of his father's sheep. And when those boys come by, God says, can't use him, can't use him, can't use him, can't use him. Why? Has no experience with the sheep. No experience with the sheep. I mean, it's an incredible principle. And look at verse 11 and 12. You think I made that up? I did, but watch. I can make it work. Look at 11 and 12. And Samuel said unto Jesse, Well, here are all thy children. And he said, There remaineth yet the youngest. And behold, he keepeth the sheep. And Samuel said unto Jesse, Send and fetch him. There's the magic words. Keepeth the sheep. That's what he was looking for. All these boys come along and he says, This all you got? And he said, No, there's one more, but he keepeth the sheep. That's him. That's him. That's him. A man with experience. Man with experience. A man who has exercised his senses with the sheep. You know, you have to taught, you have to be taught, you have to be taught how to be a shepherd. You ever catch verse 12 down there? Look at this. And he sent and brought him in, and, and now he was ruddy with all of a beautiful countenance and good little look to. And the Lord said, Arise and anoint him, for this is he. You ever catch the similarity between that verse and Song of Solomon where it talks about Christ? David looked like Christ because he'd been with Christ. And God's people are going to find him. A, God's found him a shepherd. God's found him a shepherd. You know, there's some, there's some interesting things about being a shepherd. It's a science and a study all into itself. A number of years ago, I was out in Montana, and I was preaching at a church out there, one of my boys that was pastoring a church. And out there, uh, I mean, they, got their, they don't have farms. They have ranches. And their ranches run six, seven hundred thousand acres. And I mean, when they go out, and they're gone for days. I mean, out there, I mean, it's a regular old chuck wagon deal. I mean, it's incredible. 
and I got to go out and uh, on one day they took me out and I rode out on a horse, you know, and uh, and uh, went out there and I never been years since I've been on a horse, you know, but it, uh, it was an experience. And I went out there, you know, and I got to go on a cattle drive where they were driving the cattle. And then the next day they took me out and they had sheep on the other side and I got to watch. And I'll tell you, the greatest thing I've ever seen in my life is working as a sheepdog. The most incredible things I have ever seen in my life were sheepdogs. And I talked to this old shepherd. Now, this old boy, you know, he'd been around forever. I mean, I think he, you know, I mean, you know, his teeth was all rotted out from the skull, you know, and all that stuff. And uh, he was a sheep guy. I mean, he was a sheep guy. And I was out there, you know, he's a saved man, loved the Lord. And he'd come to church and uh, he said, well, Brother Bob, I'll tell you what. He says, I sure have enjoyed your preaching. And I said, well, I said, I'm glad you have. I said, let me ask you a question. I said, how long have you been doing this? I've been doing these sheep now on almost 50 years now. So I know every one of them. I said, tell me. I said, let me. I said, you know what? I said, you know, in the Bible, Christians are liking the sheep. He said, yeah, I know that. He said, you know, I've seen some characteristics. I said, would you? Now, if you like what I taught you, teach me something. I said, tell me about sheep. And he says, well, I got to tell you this. <laughs> you know, it's running down his beard, you know, there. And he's not the kind of guy who say, oh, excuse me, Sam, you got something on your beard. You just ignore it, you know. <laughs> He'll get it later, you know. And I, I said to him, I said, I said, hey, I said, teach me about sheep. And he said, well, them sheep are the dumbest animals you ever saw in your life. I said, amen. He said, what would you say, preacher? I said, nothing. Go ahead. He says, sheep get lost real easy. And I said, really? I said, how do they get lost? He said, three reasons. Just three reasons. One, they get curious. And stray off from everybody else. He says, them sheep will eat right here. And then they'll, they'll think that there's, there's more grass over the hill. So they'll stray over the hill and get on another pasture and get lost that way. I said, amen. He said, what did you say? I said, nothing. By that time, I'm chewing. <laughs> nothing. <laughs> and he says, uh, and I'll tell you, the third thing is they get scared by wild animals. And the wild animals scare them off. And I said, well, tell me about your job. He said, my job, he says, he said, my job is to watch over the flock. And I said, well, tell me what you do. He said, well, first of all, 24 hours, seven days. I said, I live out here. I got a few people that help me, but he says, then they've been good enough to let me off to come to church so I can hear you preach. But he says, I'm out here all the time. Of course, I couldn't tell. I mean, I mean, he lived out in there. He got one of those little trailers, you know, you lived in with those wooden things you pulled by horses or whatever. And he's got a little campfire out there. He just... Stays out there 24-7. He said, it's a 24-7 job. And he had, believe it or not, I didn't even know, he had still had, in the Bible, he had one of them shepherd's crooks that come over and, and, and bend over like that, you know, and hook up at the top. That thing was about seven feet long. And I said, I, I can't believe with all the modern technology you still use one of them big old sticks. He said, it's a crook. And I said, yeah, there's those in the ministry too. But I said, well, tell me about your stick. He said, well, you use this for sheep. He says, you see how it's got that thing on the end? He says, sometimes them sheep need a gentle nudge to get back in line. I said, amen. And he says, sometimes when they get too far in line, you notice it's about seven feet long. The reason that crook, you just reach out there and put that crook on their neck and lead them back in. And he says, you never use the crook to hurt the sheep. You just use the crook to keep them in line. But... When the wild beast comes in or a wolf comes in or a coyote comes in and you're out there by yourself, you don't have your peace, then it's gone, you know. He says, that crook is, a, is your tool. He says, not only does it bring the sheep in, but it's long enough that you can stay off the animal without them getting in close and whipping them to death. 
And I guarantee you, this guy had whipped some to death in his lifetime. And he says, you know what? He says, he says, the biggest problem is six sheep. I says, why is the biggest problem six sheep? He says, because when sheep get sick, they want to get out from the herd and not be with the herd anymore and get off by themselves. I said, amen. I said, you know what you just told me? You just told me the way Christians are. Because when somebody starts coming to church and somebody starts getting involved, you see them on Thursday, you see them on Sunday, and you don't come for a while, or you don't hear and they're not there anymore, and nobody knows where they're in, you know where they wind up? They're sick. And sick sheep don't like to be around healthy sheep. Now, what in the world is that all about? I'm telling you, God picked the greatest animal in the world to, to liken to us, Christians. And I'm telling you, that old boy taught me more that day than I've ever learned. And you know what else he said? Because in the Bible over there in 1 Peter 5, it says the chief shepherd shall appear. That's Christ. He says, those sheep aren't mine. He says, I just get paid for watching them. He says, now we're going to go down here. And he says, and come fall, he says, oh, we, we keep these sheep healthy. We protect them. And then we, we, the cattle we take down there and we slaughter. And we sell them to market. We don't do that with the sheep. We just take them down there. And uh, when they get a good fur of wool, uh, wool, we take them down there and they shear off the wool. Then they bring them out next year. I said, oh, so what you're telling me, that the sheep aren't yours. They belong to the chief shepherd. But they give their wool to him. That's Romans chapter 12, a living sacrifice, you see? He's the shepherd, we're the sheep. He doesn't want us to die for him. What he wants is to sacrificially give our wool. You ever go over there in, Song of, or in Proverbs chapter 31 about the virtuous woman where she's working with a wool with her hands and the flax? Well, I'll tell you something. Now, the next great principle you find in here, and this is one of the greatest passages in the Bible. And it's found back there in, uh, in 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 7. The Lord says this. He says, But the Lord said unto Samuel, Look not on his countenance, nor on the height of his stature, because I have refused him. Here it comes. For the Lord seeth not as man seeth. For man looketh on the outward appearance, but the Lord looketh on the heart. That's one of the greatest verses in the Bible that shows you what God's looking for. You know, I've learned over the years, we use it all the time, never judge a book by its cover. Well, that's so true. I never look at the outside of people. I never look at their abilities. I never look at what they, what they purport they can do or all of that. Because the real matter is what you've got on the inside. Now, it's nice when you find somebody whose talents match up to their heart, but you don't always find that. I've found in the ministry, it's, it's usually generous like this. The people you think are going to make it and going to really help you out. I remember when I first came to Kansas City. It's been years ago. And I flew into KCI, and, and uh, I got hired at a church to be a youth pastor. And I was only 20-some years old back then, and I was just a, just a kid, boy. And I'll never forget, I flew into the airport, and this kid picked me up, who was in this, in, supposed to be in my, my, in my Sunday school class. They had him come out and get me. And this guy drove me back in, and back then, you know, the airport was, wasn't any farther than it is now, but it, there wasn't anything between it, you know. And we're driving back there, and I'm looking around, you know, I think, I'm really out west. I, I, I mean, I'll never forget. They put me up here at Benjamin Stables up there. It ain't there no more, but the hotel up there. And I'll never forget. I get up early in the morning, get ready for church, walked out on the balcony. It was a November day. It would be week before Thanksgiving. And I walked out there, and I ain't kidding you. Two guys on horseback went riding by, and I'm thinking, well, I am out west, aren't I? <laughs> he's coming back, and he's telling me all these things, you know, about uh, what, what, he, what he's going to do and this or that and all this stuff. And I'm thinking to myself, wow, this kid, I just got this kid alone. We can win the world of Christ. I don't need anybody else. 
you know what? After that kid picked me up and dropped me off, and I got settled in here and got moved back here and got going and everything, I didn't see that kid in church probably two times the rest of that year. It's never the ones you think it's going to work, at least in my, my experience it isn't. It's the one you don't think is going to make it that makes it. It's the one everybody else looks at and says, ah, forget that. My little black lab tinker, best lab in the world. Best lab in the world. Better than the other two. I know I told you Buddy was my favorite, but I was just lying in that message. I needed to lie in this one now to balance it out. <laughs> she is the sweetest dog lab. You know, she has the greatest personality. She'll do anything for you. She is the sweetest dog. She, she's not mean to anybody. She loves kids. She'll let kids ride them, pull on her tail. She'll do whatever she wants to do. She's 12 years old. She's going to die someday. Every morning I go down, I keep my fingers crossed. I don't find her dead down there because she's really old now. But she's the best dog in the world. You know what? She was the last one of the litter that nobody wanted. She was the runt. Everybody took the, all, the, all the beautiful dogs. And I'll never forget, Bart brought it for me for my birthday, and I walked around the thing there, and, and there, I think there was another one left. And I walked around there, and the other dog was over here, and I walked around there, and I thought, well, only, and then here come this little black thing, running around the side of the house, tail wagging, trotting over to me, and I said, that's it, right there. Dog has no ear canal. Born without one. In most places, they would just kill that little dog right off the spot because it isn't good for show. I mean, I mean, you got, by birth, she had no hole going down her ears. It just, it's closed completely up. I don't know what, it's just there. In fact, we had to have surgery one time because she got a big abscess down there, and the doctor said, you know, I've only seen this two times in my whole world. You know what? She, she got no ear canal, nothing in there. This is great. Not great for you. I've got to pay you $3,500. Why don't you take off some money off the bill looking at the ear and saying how great it is, you know? But, but greatest dog in the world. But it was the rut of the litter. Nobody else wanted her. And turned out to be the best dog in the world. And that's so true in life. So true in life. That's so true in life. You know what? The ministry is a constant state of redefining. The Lord said unto Samuel, he said, don't look at his countenance. Don't worry about how tall he is. Don't worry about how well, uh, uh, how well he is in all the area. Look at his heart. That's what I'm looking for. And your life and my life should be in a constant change of redefining and reevaluating and, and, and coming to the point that we're always looking where we're at and how we can better do what God wants us to be. See, that's the importance of those formulation years. That's the importance of the one-on-one. That's the importance of spending time helping you learn the process of through, the, uh, through the fundamental years of who you are in defining yourself. Defining yourself. Every church should be in a constant state of redefining everything that it does. I always am. I don't like just to do it because we've always done it. I think every church ought to constantly redefine what it's doing. I think that's the problem in churches. They get stuck in a rut. They just keep doing it the same way. It doesn't matter if anybody benefits from it or not. It's just the way we've always done it. And I think churches ought to keep as uncomplicated as they can be. I think they ought to run naturally. I think the natural approach for every church uh, uh, it should have three things going for it. And I think the first thing, and I'm going to use the word self here, but I'm going to use the word self not in a bad way, but in a good way. The first thing I think every church ought to be is self-sufficient. I think a church ought to, if it's going to be a church, then it, the people of the church ought to make it fly and financially ought to take care of it with their tithes, their offering, and their sacrificial giving. I think the leadership ought to come up in the church. The churches that say, well, we need, a, need this guy to do this, so we're going to call down here at some Bible college and hire so-and-so. we got a great kid down there. I think, that, I think that is the greatest affront to a man's ministry. The first thing a pastor ought to do when he takes a church is look out there and try to find somebody that can be his replacement and build up leadership from within, absolutely in. 
and through the process of redefining, and this is the importance of spending time together, we redefine together and look at each other and, and, and I go through the things with you, you go through the things with me. You know what? This church needs to be constantly in a, in a, in a state of redefining. And the leadership needs to be come up from the inside, not out from here or here and here. But the men and women that come up through this, who understand my heart, who understand the heart of this ministry, who get God taught in the process, that's where it works. You know, I won't be around forever. I figure I got 20 good years left. I'm 58, I figure, you know, if God gives me another 20 years or so. But if Christ doesn't come, I'm under no delusion that I'm going to live forever. And, you know, I've, oftenly, I've often thought, you know, and had people say to me, and I don't mean this in a, in a, in a bad way, and I certainly don't mean it in a bragging or an egotistical way, but I've, had, but I've had people say, well, you're really a tough act to follow. I mean, uh, the guy that follows you is going to have to be, no, that's not the way to look at it. You know that? Because at that point in time, I hope there's enough men and women that can make up this body that when one guy steps to the front and takes this church, you know what this church will have to be smart enough to do? It'll have to be smart enough to realize at that point, Bob Alexander days are gone. The church is not going to have to live in the past. It's again going to have to redefine itself for where it's at now and where it's going to go and maybe take another whole direction. That's just the way it works. I don't know what else to tell you, but if you're not in the process of redefining yourself now, if you're not, this church isn't in the process of redefining it, if we just all get stuck in the mud and do it the same way all the time, then we'll never be ready for those changes when they have to come. And we'll never be ready that when God is ready to do what he wants to do, that we can't be, we can't be uh, able to redefine ourselves and to change about it what it has to change. Every church needs to be self-sufficient. Every church needs to be self-propagating. What do I mean by that? I mean, but we don't have big ads in the newspaper. We don't have, we don't have a big sign out front with electric lights on with arrows pointing in. The greatest signs we have are sitting in this room this morning. The greatest signs we have and the greatest outreach we have is men and women in this church who have gotten their lives touched by the Word of God and what God has done in their life, and then you tell people at work about it, you tell your friends about it, you tell your neighbors about it, and you simply just say this. Come and see. Come and see. And they come in and they sometimes they like it, sometimes they don't. It's, it's okay. But that's what a church ought to be. It ought to be self-sufficient. It ought to be self-propagating. And it ought to be self-cleaning. It ought to be one like those new ovens you get. You just, when it's dirty inside, you just turn the switch and it cleans itself. A church ought to be self-cleaning. And this church pretty much is. And I think God has his own process of elimination. And we already know from when seven went through with Jesse, not everybody's going to make it. My job is to give everybody that comes to this church that has a serious, wants to do it, to give you the best shot you can have. But you know what? At the end of the day, it's your choice. It's your choice. I can't make, I talk about attitude and action, you know, your attitude produces your action. Well, there's another little concept in there, and it's called, uh, it's called change your adjustment. Most people don't want to change their lives. They just want to adjust their lives. They don't want to change about them what they got to change. They just want to adjust it. I had a lady that came into church a couple of months ago, and a young gal, a nice girl. And, you know, she called me on the phone, came over and sat out of my home, and she said, you know what, I, I mean, I'm, I'm tired of the way I'm living. I'm tired. I got this problem, 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 this problem. She had a lot of problems. 
I said, you know what? I'll tell you exactly what we need to do. And I can, we can fix this thing. I'll show you what we do. We'll get a plan in your life. We'll get this going. I'll get these people working with you. And it was just, just down, down, bang, 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 bang. Done it a thousand times before. She comes for about two or three months, starts feeling better, gets back with her boyfriend. They get their buddies again, you know, and all that stuff. And suddenly, uh, my friend, my guy, my gal's calling her on the phone and saying, hey, uh, we missed you. She said, you know what? She said, I've got all I need out of church right now. I really, I really don't want to go any farther than where I'm at right now. This is where I'm at. I don't want to go any farther than this. See, she got feeling better. She didn't change her life. She just adjusted it to her situation. Now she's feeling better, see? That's the way it is. It's okay. Hey, six months from now, a year from now, if your life tailspins into the ground, we're still here waiting for you. Just the way it works. Just the way it works. I had another lady come in, and she had some serious issues, and a number of you ladies were working with her. When she came in there, first time I met with her, she told me exactly what her heartache was, what she wanted to do, and what she wanted to accomplish. And I said, boy, you've come to the right place. I can fix that problem in a heartbeat. So I picked out 10 or 11 of you hotshot ladies in here that have a handle on it that just can do everything for somebody like this. As the weeks rolled on, she'd come over and see me. She'd complain about this person. She'd complain about that person. She say, well, I don't like this person. Well, I don't like that person. Well, this person did this. This person did that. After about the fourth time coming over, I said to you, hey, you know what? I'm running out of ladies. You're working down the list. I ain't, gonna, I ain't got many more ladies to put in your life until you realize that it ain't them. It's you who's got the problem. Okay? Now, she didn't like that, and then she left. I mean, here I got nine ladies who have worked with me for, what, five years, worked in all kinds of scenarios, and you're the problem? But that's the way some people are. You know what? Got to love them. It's okay. Last thing I said is she slammed the door. It's, please don't slam the door. No. Last thing I said. Hey, if you ever, ever, ever really want to fix this, you come back and we're ready to go. Bang! See? Maybe she will, maybe she won't. You know what? My job is to give you the best shot. I can't do it for you. I can't make things happen. I can't change the thing. I can only show you where it needs to be. And that's what, that's what it's all about. I'm here to help you. I'm here to help you get a ready mind and prepare your heart to seek the Lord. And the reason we, way we do that is through the fundamental things in your life and those years of building it wherever you're at. Wherever you at, I see so many of God's people when they come in that even though maybe they're very worldly in one sense and they really have a lot of issues in another sense, the bottom line is when I see that first crack of light of God in their life, I see an innocence in them that needs to be cultivated. Oh, maybe they've been around the block four or five times and have all kinds of issues, but when their first crack of God's light comes into their heart, I see an innocence in them, an innocence that can be cultivated into a great relationship with God. Those years are crucial. Those years are crucial. And the larger this church gets, the more it's going to take men and women who, who, who are overseers, who take the responsibility, who understand that of what it takes. You know, next year's our fifth year anniversary. And I know it's not a long time, but it's been a good time. But I, in preaching this message this morning, I can honestly say this. And if you look around here and you've been around four years or more or something like that, or maybe even three years, I know so many things have changed. We've redefined ourselves. People come and go. But I want to say this to you. The leaders that are here today that make this thing happen, 
The people that I have working with people, helping me with this, helping me with that, the ones that have come up through the middle, and I'm just like, hey, uh, you know what? You all could have been there. I was, I was watching that movie, Gods and Generals. Whoa, what a great thing. I didn't know that was a, excuse me, folks. I didn't know that was a trilogy. That, that, did you know that? A, a tri, don't you know what a trilogy is? A trilogy. Yeah. Don't mispronounce it. It's a trilogy. It'll make me ba- look bad in front of everybody, but the trilogy is a trilogy. What did you say it was? Trilogy. That's right. Good. Good. He, he's wrong up here. He laughed. He scoffed. You know what? Guy with a haircut like that, I'd laugh too. Anyway. <laughs> Let me get that for you. You don't want to, you want to get this note in your Bible. Okay? But I'll tell you. It's a, it was an incredible thing. And I watched that, and I, and I thought to myself, wow, that's exactly, uh, that's exactly so much what, what all this is happening and going on in our world today. And I, I looked at that, and I thought to myself, what an incredible, incredible concept of how these guys really, really had a love for God in the process of what they were going through in life. And I'm telling you, I'm telling you, you can have, you can have everything you want. And I was thinking as I was watching that, about a, a World War II, a, World, a Civil War story of a, of a saved man. He was on the, uh, he was on the uh, uh, Confederate side. His name was Peter Appleman. And there's a book out about him. He was an incredible guy. And Peter Appleman was about six foot seven and, and, and you know, and about 250 pounds. And it, they're down there and they're shooting down at the Yankees and they're shooting back up. And it kind of got quiet for a while. And old Peter Appleman said, I'm going to go down there and get me one of them, get me one of them Yankees. So he crawled over the parapet, you know, and he's going down through there, you know, and he jumped down in the, in the trench on the Yankee side, and there was a guy turned around, and he got a fist about as big as a ham, man. He just popped that guy and threw that guy over his shoulder and started going back up, and everybody's shooting at him, and his own guys are shooting back. Peter Appleman come up there, and his commanding officer come up, and he, he threw that Yankee soldier down there, and everybody was standing around, and they were eyes were bigger, and he says, there's that there, Yankee. He says, you know what? You all could have had one. A whole bunch of them over there. <laughs> hey, you all can have part of the ministry. It's just some guys are settled to stay in the trench, undercover. Some guys are willing to stick their neck out to go get some. It's that simple. That simple. This is not just my ministry anymore. It's yours. And many of you have learned to love it. Many of you have learned to love it like I love it. Man, you learn to love the book as I do, the ministry as I do. But the bottom line, you know, we, people come and go. And the leaders today that are making this church happen basically are the ones that one-on-one have got the, got the issues in their lives worked through and the foundational who found out my heart, found out the ministry, had a place where they could ask anything and get whatever they needed to know to make it happen. It's not just my ministry. You know why some of you don't want to get into the ministry? I want to be very honest with you. Because the ministry can be painful. It can be. People say nasty things about you. And some of you don't like that. People lie about you. Some of you don't like that. Some of you don't deal well with conflict. But the bottom line is this. I've always likened the ministry to having a baby. Most of you have had babies in here. Women. (laughs) There was a time in America, you didn't have to quantify that, but... uh, you do today. And you know what? You, don't, you know how, baby? You carry that baby for nine months. 
And I'll tell you what, you know, and all the time, you know, go through. And that's a, that's a, that's a, I looked at my little Jamie the last couple of weeks, you know, weeks, last couple of months. I mean, I felt like I needed to have a wheelbarrow and just hold under her stomach. It was just, I, I didn't even want to look at her. And I mean, I was just, not because I didn't want to look at her, but because it just looked so she uncomfortable. Her feet would swell up. She, I walked down the stairs the other night and she's sitting down there and I'm saying, now, who is that? Oh, that's, that's Jamie. That's both of her. Look, at her feet were swelled. Her face was swelled. Terrible. And then we go to the hospital. Now, you know, some of you ladies have been in some terrible labor. I mean, it's, it, it goes on and on and on, you know. And then you, you know, then you got to go through the process of having that child and, and, you know, and all the things that goes on there. And it's not a, it's, it, 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 it may be a, you know, it may be a, it, it's not a pleasant thing to go through it. But, hey, you know what? No matter how painful it is, no matter the nine months that you carry, you know what? When you hold that little baby in your arms. And that doctor lays it down and says, boy, she is a beautiful little gal, or he is a sweet little guy. And you look at that little face, and you hold that little baby. You know what? You forget all about whatever pain you went through in the last 12 hours or the last nine months. It's gone. All of the bad things, all of the hurt, all of the pain have been absolved in holding that little baby in your arms. That is the fruit that God has given you. And the ministry is just like that. And you better learn that. You have people that are hard people and people that give you tough times and people you struggle with and people that, that, that try to hurt the ministry. But you know what? The ministry can be painful. But you know what? It only takes one little guy or one little gal that says, boy, I really want to learn the Bible. Oh, I just want to learn it. And I just, I, I, know it's, I know it's 4 o'clock in the morning, but I had this question about the Bible. I'm going through today. And you know, and it, it only takes one person. It only takes one person who, and you just forget about all the rest. You see, you've got to focus on what the ministry is. And the ministry is is taking young Christians, being a shepherd to them, overseeing what they're going through, helping them, redefining where they're at, helping them have better marriages, taking a wife and teaching her how to be better to her husband or a husband and how to be better to his wife, taking a process where you just take, help them with their children or help the children or help whatever they need or just teach them the Bible, give them those foundational years that David had that made him the great shepherd not just for the sheep that he watched for his father, but the great shepherd of the nation of Israel. You know what God saw in him he didn't see in the other boys? He saw a shepherd's heart. That's what God looks for. He looks in your heart. He doesn't look on the outside. He doesn't look at the stature. He looks for your heart. He looks for you when you look at somebody and you say, boy, I'd like to help them. Boy, I'd like to be able to be there for that. Boy, I'd like to do that. Boy, I'd like to be part of that. Boy, I'd love to teach that person the Bible. That's where it comes in. And that gets built in those formative years. Those foundational years, those tender years in your life. That's where David learned it. In a week, next week, and a week after, we're going to look at David as David's king and David as God's man. And we're going to see that process that that's what God used when David got in a tight spot. Let's pray.